Aloha, welcome back everybody to the Curvy Geeky Fangirl Podcast. My name is Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl. And as always, this podcast is to recap all of the geek in my week, weeks, plural. It's been a little, little bit. It's been a little bit. Not long, but a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna be talking about all the TV shows I managed to squeeze in, uh, the books I've been reading. I read a book. I read a book. I'm excited. Also that, and uh, yeah, you know, all the geeky fun things that I do. A little bit of self-promo. As always, you can find me at my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. You can also find me on the Instagram, the Twitter. That's it. That's all I really do. There's not, (laughs) I'm not a social media queen. And if you can tell by my Instagram postings, I clearly don't care. I clearly don't care, but I am a regular on Twitter. So if you want to reach me, that is the best place to do so, short of sending me an email through my website. So, putting that out there. You can also find this podcast through Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, a bunch of other places, because your girl is popping. Just kidding, I joined <laughs> Anchor. Anchor does a lot of stuff for you, so which is really, really nice, because if anybody's trying to jump into podcasting, you know, girl, it's work, it's work, and you gotta find, softwares and stuff that's compatible with your broke ass computer and it's hard and then this app comes along and it's just wonderful little mini cell promo plug anyway moving on to the good stuff so as you guys know i do this weekly podcast recapping tv and film and books uh the tv and film i'm going to be recapping i caught happy death day 2 i am a fan of this is it a franchise if it's only two movies I'm gonna call it that. I'm a fan of this franchise. I like how dumb it is. It's so nice. Uh, I also like, also watched uh, The Magicians. I've got episode four and five ready to go. I'm gonna be talking about Doom Patrol, episodes one and two. I am also going to be unleashing the feels I have about Umbrella Academy. So please follow along with me if you dare. As always, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. I go heavy into spoilers on all of these topics. If you are not caught up, you're interested, catch up first, come on back so we can recap together and share these feelings because there was a lot of geek in the last couple of weeks. So all of that's going to be going down on this podcast. So let's go ahead and jump off and get this started. I'm going to be talking about Happy Death Day 2 right after this. All right, jumping into Happy Death Day 2. It's going to be real quick, real simple, because that's also kind of the movie. The movie in a nutshell is pretty quick and, and simple. And that's kind of what I love of how it plays on it. So if you guys don't know, Happy Death Day, the first movie, it is a horror. Not anthology, but it's a horror film. So basically, the premise of the first movie was about how this girl is doing a Groundhog Day, but about her death. So it's the day of her birthday. She is the most pompous, petty, cheerleader-esque type, basic average white girl that you want her to be <laughs> in this thing. She's in a sorority, she's in college, and she's just the worst. She's terrible. And she gets murdered by this hooded figure with a baby face mask. 
the school's mascot also was a baby for some reason. It's terrifying. So all of this, all of this is happening. So she gets murdered and then she wakes up and her day is repeating. And then she, after a series of deaths, realizes that she needs to use this time to figure out who her, who her murderer is, why they're after her and how to get it to stop. Basically, the first movie was just a lot of fun. Not super in-depth, kind of played with the mythology of there being all of these days that she had to keep repeating and what she could do differently and what she what could, didn't change and what did. It was fun. It was fun to watch. It was fun. They gave her a little love interest. Super cute. Uh, they introduced a bunch of side characters that were actually really, really funny. It was pretty good. So I walked into Happy Death Day 2 thinking I was just going to get more of the same. I didn't have a high expectation on them creating like this multidimensional world filled with these complex characters. That's not what this movie is about. This movie is popcorn, good fun, blood and gore, a little scary. There's like, there's, there's some thrills and jumps in there, but it's not really talking about monsters, just human monsters, you know, twists and turns. So Happy Death Day 2 decided to up the ante and the the promos for it led you to believe the marketing for it led you to believe that it was now shifting. So rather than her reliving this day over and over again, now we were going to get it from the perspective of another side character. Uh, This uh, Asian character who plays the roommate to her love interest, who if I was a good person would have the cast set up. But I kind of diverged. I want to say his name is Ty or Fen. And of course, now I don't know anything. So anyway, it's another side character. And um, here it is. Not even close. He plays a character named Ryan Fan. Uh, but his real name is Fivu. There we go. One of the two. Anyway, we're getting it from his perspective. And he kind of played like the the idiot sidekick essentially to the love interest for the main character. He just kind of pops in at the room when she wakes up. He's the one that gets chased away. He's kind of this like dorky nerd or whatever. And they don't really dwell more than that into his character in the first movie. But in the second movie, we learn the backstory to this kid. So yes, he's the roommate to the love interest. The love interest is a character named Carter. To the main character, her name is Tree. Yeah, her name is Tree. It's very Buffy-esque. So... He is the roommate slash friend of Carter's. We find out and when the movie opens up that he actually is a genius. He's actually at school pursuing an engineering program. Or well, an engineer degree. There we go. Uh, he's in some kind of science program where they are playing around with quantum physics and trying to create a machine that will open up, I guess, work as a doorway to other dimensions because that's safe. Cool. So apparently he's trying to do that. And in the process of doing that, he starts to die. This little part of the story lasts all of five minutes before it goes right back to Tree dying over and over again and her trying to having to figure out this time not who the murderer is because they keep that pretty consistent, but more about how she stops her cycles from going and going. The twist they added was that in this new dimension, now that they've created dimensions and that's how they've explained away this death day situation, in the current dimension that she's kind of got jumped into, her mom is alive. This was a big plot point for the first movie and that she really missed her mom. And like part of the reason she was such a bitch and avoiding everybody and blocking everybody out was because she suffered this huge loss when her mom died of cancer. So in the dimension she's in, her mom's alive. But she finds out when her mom, mother's alive, other stuff 
is not the same. Her love interest, who's become her boyfriend, Guy Carter, he's no longer with her. Now he's with her frenemy, this girl named Danielle, who runs a sorority. Um, she also... No, that was it. That was like the big, <laughs> that was like the biggest difference. She either gets to keep her mom, uh, but none of the memories that her alternative self had with this mother, which kind of troubled her. And but and Luz Carter, who also has none of the memories from her existing dimension timeline. But that they try to play it off like she had to choose true love over somebody she loved and lost. It was very clumsily put together. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. I fell asleep during the movie it's definitely a movie you should definitely watch at home when it's playing maybe if it jumped on netflix or hit amazon prime for free or hit a cable network for free i wouldn't recommend buying a ticket i don't even know if it's still in theaters now that i'm telling you this and thinking about it i think it did okay it did respectable because it came out around valentine's day but uh yeah i fell asleep during this movie so i know by the end of it they kind of they try to like circle everything, circle the wagons, get everything kind of roped together. And it ultimately ends with Tree going back to her original timeline. Uh, Fee Vu's character, Ryan, getting to work with the government as a project now that they've discovered his contraption is working. And then them kind of leaving it open to other shenanigans because now the whole crew is in on the testing of this new project. So I, I, I'm interested to see where they go with the Death Day 3 because Death Day 2 was a bit all over the place. There were moments that were funny and there were still moments that were pretty cool to watch, but it took a long time to get to those moments and it just started to ramble and wander like I do in my podcast, but on screen. So yeah, so yeah, quick and quick and to the point. That's pretty much Happy Death Day. Um, What else can I push in here that was really, really fast? Now, that's it. Oh, the book I read. Let's talk about the book I read, guys. So I read the latest um, My Hero Academia manga that dropped 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 a little bit ago actually volume 17 i want to say it was released oh early part of february i'm not that behind as i thought okay here we go okay great so dropped earlier part of of february 15 or yeah february 5th there we go it's the english version because you know i'm not my level's not there yet i haven't i haven't ascended so i'm reading the english versions of this so i have to wait for whoever has the right to the english version of this to drop it the Japanese manga is <laughs> years ahead of all of us, but um, I can't read Japanese. So English mangas, it is. So I'm reading those. This story is getting a lot darker than I had expected it to get. It's very, and I'm even reading the little spinoff. They're doing a, a spinoff on, on the series uh, that of course I don't, I don't know what it's called, um, but <laughs> um, I am reading it. I am reading this. Oh, there it is. Uh, the Vigilantes series. There you go. My Hero Academia Vigilantes. I'm also reading that series and I finished volume three, which also dropped not too long ago. That one started dark. Like they are showing you how it's a combination of like everydayers who don't have a quirk, like if they're quirkless and uh, people who do have quirks, but weren't enough to get them into an academy like My Hero Academia or, or UA or to be go professional with their quirk and like saving the world and doing that. They're working everyday jobs and like trying to side hustle on, on your everyday. But um, the angle seems to be like, yes, we have these vigilante characters, but they're also characters who could have 
gone the route of pro hero, but because of different obstacles that popped up or different decisions that they made at the time, they lost that chance. So this is them trying to make it a second, third, fourth, fifth time because they feel it's the right thing to do even though it's completely illegal. So they're doing that, <laughs> they're doing that and we're getting to see it from like a B-side group, which is interesting. And because it's B-side, it's a lot darker. People are getting hurt a lot more. The storyline dives quick into drugs. We just go jump, we go straight into the anthology of drugs and what it's happening on the streets. And I was like, yo, this is so right. Okay, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty interesting, especially since this is geared towards I don't want to say super young kids, but definitely not adults. So I expected that from vigilantes, but from My Hero Academia, the original source, I was not expecting it to go the route it did. So we we focus on Lemillion, who's a newish character they introduced into the story as of the English version right now, who very much mimics All Might. Like he looks the part, he's killing it in the game. He's like one of the big three for this school. And um, I'm at a part where him and Midoriya are doing, it's not internships, but it's like, I guess school work service. They're they're basically working under what would be a pro program or pro division or department of some sort trying to get like, you know, their feet wet in this business and see what that's like going on patrols and trying to work their way up their ladders. And of course they get sucked into a major deal that's going down. And of course it relates to the major big bad that's happening, which is overhaul. Overhaul's powers are amazing. I'm interested to see where that goes. They also introduce a new character in the story. She has very interesting powers. She's confusing. It's confusing with what's happening to her right now, but she's cool too. But what's going on with Lemillion, this big character that for all intents and purposes, a lot of the characters in the book are like, this should have been All Might's choice to take on the all for one power. Or, you know, no, one for all. There we go. The one for all power. <laughs> for But, you know, he didn't. He chose Midoriya. We see why. We see why Midoriya is the better bet than Lemillion. Not to say that Lemillion is terrible or there's some part of him that doesn't deserve it necessarily, but it's interesting to see mindset-wise where Lemillion's at and where Midoriya's at. Granted, Lemillion's technically been at this a little bit longer than Midoriya, but Midoriya's seriousness, uh, seriousness in taking care of the world and people in general, you see the difference and you see why it's a better fit for Midoriya. But yeah, I'm not gonna get into too much spoilers. I'm not gonna get into too much spoilers with this book. But there's a big change that happens to Lemillion that I could not imagine could happen to Midoriya. Clearly, can happen to Midoriya if we want to keep the story going. So I'm interested to see where that goes. If anything's gonna happen to gain it back, and what that means when you go from being this larger-than-life entity to essentially a nobody. So. Interested to see where that goes as well. So that's going to wrap it up for this little short segment of random geek stuff I kind of fell into. And I'm going to be talking about the magicians right after this. Like all things geeky and nerdy, check out ForAllNerds.com, a site that strives to uplift people of color in pop and geek culture. Yours truly is the fashion and lifestyle editor over there with tons of fandom fashion sets for cosplay inspiration and everyday geek wear. Check out ForAllNerds.com today. 
All right, so we're jumping right into The Magicians, and I'm going to be talking about episode four as well as episode five, because uh, I caught them both, and why not? Also, episode four was called Mary, and then they did like an ellipses, like a dot, dot, dot kill, but we all know it's Mary, fuck, kill. Let's not, let's not pretend we don't, so we know it's really that. The gist of episode four was basically... Um, Somebody was in trouble. There was some, I mean, other than Elliot, who's currently hidden away in the monster, uh, Josh was in trouble. Josh was going through the quickening, which apparently is a almost rapid state that werewolves get into in order to ensure that this lycanthropy disease continues itself. So he's either got to infect somebody sexually because it's sexually transmitted, um, or kill somebody like that's <laughs> or kill himself like those are the options that's what he gets to do essentially which kind of falls into the married fuck kill situation Mary, like a loose term. well no you know what i was gonna say it's a loose term of a of a having sex with somebody but that's what fuck is so uh, nope that's not what it was that's not what it was so Basically, uh, Josh is in a tizzy because he doesn't want to infect anybody unknowingly, except that he did. So apparently his whole run when he was an altered itself, when the Dean erased everybody's memories to guise them as somebody else. He did accidentally do that. He uh, was an Uber driver and he had a fare that kind of was into him and they ended up hooking up. And of course, that Josh had no idea that he was infected with lycan- lycanthropy. We're going to say that lycanthropy werewolf he was a werewolf um so now that this josh realizes it and still has the memories from his past life he goes to warn the fair and it turns out it's too late she for sure uh has the disease and (laughs) she has murdered somebody uh in the process so she gets a little bit of an explanation but she also doesn't count as a resolution for his quickening because he's got to do it while the quickening is happening which is every 30 so years so which moves on to his next step of finding somebody maybe to willingly infect, which he knows is a long shot. That's not going to happen. So he tries to like stave it off as best as he can. Like maybe you just uh, chain me up somewhere and I'll figure it out. But Margaret realizes that can't be an option either because you'll die. You'll kill yourself. Like that's apparently what's known about it after he spoke with the teacher that gave it to him. So Margot finds a spell. Uh, she decides that they can definitely try to uh, do some, I guess, heal him, figure out a way to stop him from having to do, uh, you know, go into the quickening. And it's an Indonesian spell. Margo and Josh screaming in Indonesian was hilarious. I don't know if anything was correct. I don't know if the pronunciation was correct. I just like these two people screaming in the middle of the street with the, the entrails of an iguana <laughs> to make it work. Thankfully, we don't have to see the iguana get hurt. So there's that. Also, it was Kanye's iguana. Or not iguana, Komodo dragon. They randomly threw that in there as well. It was it was all over the place. But it was a nice little moment between Josh and Margot. Her trying to help him. Josh fully freaking out. And ultimately, Margot, I, I don't want to see it in an effort to make up for the fact that he had to kill his friend, but to show that she's there for him willingly accepts being transmitted with a disease, which means that they got to get down and dirty. They decide to have sex right there in the middle of the cell floor. Not safe. I don't think that's safe, but you know, whatever, you know. Uh, And even afterwards was real cute. Like after the madness ebbs and he's fulfilled what he needs to for the quickening and now Margot is L positive. 
uh, Josh is like, you know, worrying and telling her that, you know, she's going to miss out on a lot of stuff because of what she's carrying. And she's like, please, <laughs> there's so much other stuff I could totally do without having to do. P-. She calls it PNV, which I loved. Love that. Her bigger obstacle was giving over the fact that Elliot is not coming back. That monster Elliot or Darth Elliot is the one that's staying. And him being there for her when she comes to that realization, that was really cute. It was a really sweet moment between the two of them. Elsewhere in the episode four, we had stuff going on with, well, going on with uh, Alice and Christopher Plover. Christopher Plover is the writer of the stories they read. What is it called? Don't even, I have a terrible memory. I have a terrible memory. It's like something in Fillory. Follow and Fillory or Fillory and Father, something of that nature. Basically, he, he's the writer of all these books that Quentin used to love that are actually epically popular in their realm. Uh, except he's a complete pedophilic monster. So there's that. He's the reason they had a big bad in the first couple of seasons in the first place because he was a monster. So Alice is kind of stuck with him because he can actually help her escape the library. And he actually does. She He holds up his end of the deal to help her find her friend's books. She holds up her end of the deal to get them out of the library and get him to where he can go, I guess, to safely uh, spend the rest of his time at. I don't know if he's living forever or what, but he's kind of stuck in a stasis and he wants to go somewhere where he can just be peaceful and free. Lord knows what that place looks like. And he does this thing where he acknowledges that he was terrible, that he's a terrible person. But at the same time, is apologetic about it and is also trying to move on. Like he gives her these valid insights to the fact that, yeah, yeah, what you're doing, what you did, like your past might be terrible, but you also have to look to your future and what that means, what actions you're taking for that. And it's, it's to Alice's credit, Alice's credit, it is hard to take this good advice from somebody who is fucking terrible. So she just decides, again, she very much does an Alice and decides that she's just going to figure this out on her own and tricks him into going into a poison world. Something tells me that's going to come back to bite her in the ass majorly. He managed to survive in the library for Lord knows how long. He probably could figure out how to survive in a poison world and plot revenge and kill her eventually. So I'm sure that's coming down the pike. So we have that happening. Uh, Alice, meanwhile, makes it back to uh, the real world. And that leads us into episode five. We also had Julia and Penny doing, it was, I didn't, okay, I'm confused. So Penny 23, which is what we're calling him. He's from the 23rd timeline. That timeline, him and, and that Julia, so Julia 23, were in love. They were a couple, but she died in their efforts to try to stop the beast, who in that timeline was Quentin. So he meets this Julia from the timeline that we know, which we're going to call one. And, which is probably isn't they probably said what it was but I didn't pay attention so he's talking to this Julia that we know who's now goddess Julia or was formerly goddess Julia and um trying to be there for her and help her and is clearly obsessed with her and but it turns out to be of benefit because Julia can't figure out why she can't die but also has no magic ability they run into this main ad who tells them what's going on She's a powerless god, basically. She needs a follower to like anoint her so that they can start the process to heal her, to have her become a functional goddess again. Um, 
And he does that. It is a very strange ceremony in which he's got to, well, she's basically naked and he's got to like, I don't know if it's water or oil, but he's basically washing her feet and anointing her skin. And there's a whole part in there where he's trying to be like this chivalrous gentleman in his head of like not looking and making sure to get her permissions. And she's like, fucking do what you need to do. <laughs> like we already had this discussion. I need you to get over yourself and do the job. And he does. So, I mean, and I mean, a lot of, there were a lot of articles that wrote about how this was a strong moment. This was a nice twist on a otherwise, I, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was that big of a deal, honestly. Granted, I'm not a professional critic, so there's that. To me, it just looked like this guy who was fumbling and bumbling and treating a moment like it was supposed to be a far more intimate one than it actually was. And Julia basically slapping him and telling him to slap, no, snap out of it. We have a job to do. Let's do this job. All right, next step. So they do all that. They go back to the mainnet. The mainnet discovers, oh yeah, you're real. And also becomes a follower. And we move on into the next group. I think that's really it. We had Darth Elliot doing stuff. Um, when we ended episode four, he basically tells Quentin that Elliot's dead. And then we find out, surprise, Elliot's not dead. He's just kind of locked away into a, a very deep level subconscious between the monster and his body. So that basically ended episode four. And then we moved into episode five, which to me felt like a very long filler episode. A bountiful filler episode, but a filler episode nonetheless. We got a very long perspective of Elliot now that he's trapped in the monster and what that means. He's essentially reliving his life in Breakville. It's the same day over and over. And he doesn't want it to be, essentially. He knows it's fake, but he doesn't want to let go of some of the memories that he's reliving. Um, we eventually see that loop break. There's another person in this subconscious and we recognize him. He's actually uh, the guy that was the beast body when we first met the monster. The, the, is he the, no, they're not calling him the beast, the monster. When we first, first met the monster in the spire, this was the body he was r rolling with before Elliot tried to shoot it. So this guy basically lays the ground rules of what it's like to be in the monster's subconscious in your own body while you're being possessed. And essentially you get to relive all your happy memories. It's a way to pass the time. Uh, and then kind of lets it slip and drop that you could get out if you walk through your door, which apparently is like reliving your most harshest, terrible memory, but it shocks your subconscious into consciousness and you're able to take over your body for a, a moment or so. So that becomes Elliot's goal. I need to let my friends know that I'm alive. We go through a lot of different terrible memories of Elliot's. He was, oh, he kind of killed a bully uh, by accidental purpose. He didn't know his abilities were coming into fruition and he made a wish involving some sort of bus and this bully or some sort of vehicle and this bully and it worked. This bully gets hit by a vehicle and dies at school. So terrible. We see <laughs> Elliot talk about how he basically was friendless throughout most of school, but he had this one friend uh, who was always there for him. Flash forward to the next terrible memory where he is beating the, level, the living ish out of this friend. This Apparently everybody knows that this person is gay and they are kicking the shit out of this kid on the gym floor, including Elliot. So he's just talking about how he's got his own self-hatred and wasn't sure what to do with that. And then here was this kid who had the audacity to try to live his truth and he couldn't handle. 
and you thought that was pretty bad. It's pretty fucking terrible. But apparently that wasn't the worst one. We go through uh, another memory, which is what set a lot of the fandom on fire. We get an acknowledgement that an Elliot Quentin uh, relationship could have been in the works. So in season three, there was this whole standalone episode where in the middle of their quest, Quentin and Elliot kind of got stuck. Was it a dimension? I don't know what this was or if it was just, I know it was part of the quest, but still not sure what this was. They had to create this puzzle that explained life essentially. Uh, And they went at this thing for a very long time. They were stuck in this realm for like 50 years apparently. And we see a lot of changes happen during this time frame. Quentin uh, tries to hook up with Elliot and Elliot kindly tells him no. Then Quentin hooks up with a local girl, has a baby, local girl dies. He raises his son. Um, it's still my, Meanwhile, still living with Elliot. And the whole time we're kind of led to believe this is a platonic relationship between Elliot and Quentin. Like they're just friends who care about each other while they're trying to solve this puzzle. To the point where Elliot dies in this realm while Quentin is trying to figure out this puzzle. And then he finally figures it out, which rolls back the, rolls them back to the moment before they left to finish this quest, but they keep their memories intact. And we, that's where we left it. But apparently there was a moment after all of that, that Elliot had been locking away for some time. And it was the moment that Quentin basically told him that he loved him and that they should try to make it fucking work. Brilliant brilliant they're an adorable couple and clearly 50 years of being together he talks it about he talks about how it you know what other kind of proof of concept do you would you have by by what we live through basically which is a great truth it's honest and wonderful and of course Elliot is like no and runs away from it so he basically shakes his head at Quentin kind of like dismisses the idea entirely. He's like, listen, we were a circum, we were victims of circumstance, essentially. Like if we had choices, that's not the choices we would have made. Let's keep it what it was. All right, you do your thing, I do mine, bye. And that's the the thing he's most terrible of because he actually loves Quentin. So apparently there's a lot of references to Brideshead Revisited. If you guys ever, is it? Yeah. If you guys ever have read the book or watched any of the remakes, the film and TV versions, of this. It essentially is about these two men who share this kind of taboo relationship for the time, being gay, and how one is more enthralled with being with the other than the other wants to admit, and it kind of leaving it, and just leaving it kind of very vague, of like, well, it's it's very um, Brokeback Mountain, and that you had two people who clearly were in love with each other, but because of society or whatever else, they decide not to forego it and they live miserable lives apart. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> so apparently Quentin and Elliot are based kind of on these characters. And apparently in the books, that's how they kind of leave it too with them. Like this unfinished business while Quentin moves on with women and Elliot does his Elliot thing. But in the TV show, they kind of, they give it a tiny resolution in that Elliot finally acknowledges what they had and that he wanted it and how could he be such a fucking moron and the fact when somebody that he loves loves him back and wants to work it out and he's like no him facing this memory apparently is the key to finally get back his consciousness in his body and he manages to get a message to Q right before they're about to send the beast or I keep calling him the beast the monster back to the spire so 
It's, of course, it's last minute. So at the very end of the episode, it's this whole bing, bang, boom. But he gets his message across. Um, also, the rest of the magician's crew, meanwhile, they are trying to figure out how to lock away the beast. Keep calling the beast. The monster, Darth Elliot. They're trying to figure out a way to, to lock up Darth Elliot, but they're not sure how to do that. They pretty much think real Elliot is dead. So um, a goddess comes back. Iris comes back to talk to Julia. And she's like, listen, you're fucking things up. Like this. <laughs> you give up all your powers to make these damn keys to help release this goddamn monster to bring back magic. This is your fault, bitch. You need to fix it. <laughs> like, and she tells her how to do it, basically. She's like, you need to get blood from a stone. And we'll use that concoction to spread on the monster, which is what's going to lock him, or at least weaken him so that we can lock him back into the spire. Cool. Julia's like, I, I guess I'll go ahead and do this. She's like, do it or I'll fucking kill you. She's like, okay, I guess I'll do it. So they go on this mini quest of trying to figure that out. Maynade and Toe, uh, the Maynade and Penny are kind of like vying for position with Julia, which is kind of sad and hilarious at the same time. Penny 23 is trying to show his importance, but he's not important at all. And then we, <laughs> the main head uh, is quick to correct him on a lot of shit. And she technically is more important to Julia at this moment because she knows a lot more about what's going on around them. So Penny's like dejected and he leaves. Um, they figure out what to do. Alice comes back into the picture. She shows back up on the break bill doorstep. Quentin, of course, slams the door in her face. And then she basically explains what her purpose is, which is warning Quentin that he's going to die soon. She lays it all out. She talks about how she read his book. Um, and begrudgingly, Quentin allows her to help them figure out how to get this blood from a stone to help lock this monster back in the spire. It, it's not a welcomed change for the group because they all remember what Alice fucking did. And Alice kind of expects it, but in her head, she's also like, but look at all the good things I did. I just need you guys to validate this and then we'll be back. I'll be back in the mix and I'm back to being good. Look at all the choices I'm making. But of course, uh, finally, Quentin's like, listen, no, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Oh, sorry. And um, I'm stepping on my dog. And it's, I don't want to say it's a wake up call for Alice, but it's not the reception she thought she was going to have. For, especially from Quentin, because he had done so much to be with her in the first place. And, you know, she just knocked all that to hell when she decided to do her own thing. So <laughs> it's complicated. So we see all of that. Uh, the the monster also is a lot closer to finding out or to getting his wish, which is his own body. He's been in essence this entire time, like a spirit. And he's not sure why. He doesn't have a whole lot of memory. And he keeps collecting these things from inside these gods and he's not sure what to do with them. But Julia manages to break down that they are building blocks to create his form. Where they just have to find them all, basically. It's a whole Pokemon situation. He's got to find them all. Get his body back and try to put that together. The, the Clearly their plan to put him in the spire is not going to work. Iris shows up pissed and is like, Julia, fucking, I told you, you need to get this done. You're such a fucking mess. And goes to kill her, kills her Maynard instead. I mean, good news for Penny, but not good news for anybody else. Uh, also goes to move to kill Julia, but the monster steps in, kills, recognizes Iris, kills her, takes the next building block out of her, and then turns on the group, rightfully so. He realizes, okay, you guys tried to trick me. This goddess showed up. You had goo. What the fuck is happening? And they're like, no, 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 no. They play it off like this was all a plan to get Iris to come here. 
so that you can get another block and we can get you these answers. And it it works. He believes it. He's like, good job, guys. And disappears out. And so that's basically where we're left with everything. Now we know that those blocks he's pulling out of all of them are to make his next body or to make his real body, his true body. Alice hasn't been forgiven. She is still in the doghouse. Uh, oh, and Penny 23 gets abducted. Some guy spots him on a park bench and is like, just starts talking to him like he knows him. And he's like, do I know you? And this guy just stabs him in the neck with a syringe. End of the Magicians episode five. It was a lot of Elliot perspective to boil it down to the fact that he loves Quentin and to get his message out. Alice not being forgiven. Alice not being forgiven at all. And the rest of the crew just kind of finding things to do in the episode. And apparently the next episode is going to focus on these interlopers, basically the 23 kids that managed to come back into this current timeline. Yeah, timey-wimey stuff. And the current timeline, um, I'm not sure why, but there's a group of people who feel that they need to kill them. The the intro is, not the intro, the promo for the next episode isn't quite clear. Uh, We just know that page 23 is in trouble for sure. So... That's it. That's all I got. Oh, we had a funny moment as well. Poor Todd, the side character Todd, who they show and who's usually at break bills and is usually a sidekick to somebody. We find out his first name is Elliot, but they told him he had to stop using it because the other Elliot was there. Hilarious. So that, yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, there was stuff happening with Margot and her kingdom, uh, her letting everybody know that Elliot was dead and then her also having to figure out what else to do for her kingdom. I'm sure there was something else that she had to really focus on, but I don't, I didn't really care about Margot's story. So that's happening. So I'm going to be moving on. I'm going to be talking about Doom Patrol right after this. All right, moving on to Doom Patrol. So DC, the streaming service, dropped their latest live action series. And that is Doom Patrol. This came right off of the hills at the end of Young Justice, which I still haven't watched. I don't know why I just don't watch it. But I still haven't watched this Young Justice, even though I've heard it's very good. I still haven't watched it yet. It's on the it's on the docket. It's on the list. But I did watch the first two episodes of Doom Patrol. Okay, so I'm gonna go into the bad first because you guys know how I feel about these DC live action series. Titans had so much promise, and then just kept flubbing the ball every two seconds, and I don't know why. And oh my gosh. Anyway, so. I did not have high hopes for Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol, that Doom Patrol episode where they introduced them and a storyline with Beast Boy was one of my favorite episodes. I liked it. I liked the weird. I liked how they balanced all the character narratives. It worked. I mean, we had our Raven stuff that I really didn't care about. But otherwise, but the Raven stuff was little. It was mostly about introducing this this group, Doom Patrol. Cool. So we get into the episode and... I was confused as to why they did this. But in the first episode of Doom Patrol, we get a full like backstory to how Cliff joins them. I was confused. I mean, I'm, I don't know if they set this up in case nobody watched Titans. So they didn't get the intro with Doom Patrol. But if you, my thing is, if you're already paying the money to watch the streaming service or watching it somehow anyway, wouldn't you have caught anyway? So for some reason, they're pretending like nobody watched that introduction episode to these characters in Titans. And we get a very long backstory into how Cliff joined the Doom Patrol. Is it completely fruitless? No, it's not. We get the return of Brendan Fraser, who is one of my favorites. He is a very long-standing crush uh, from his days as Encino Man. 
for me. So it's very nice to hear his voice and see him back on the screen uh, doing his thing, playing this very uh, bad character, this very this very selfishly motivated bad character uh, who essentially loses everything in order to become the being he is now. So we get the story on Cliff, aka, is he just robot man or, ro- or the, ro- no, I don't even know. The robot? I don't know what he is. Robot man. Yep, that's it. Um, basically used to be a race car driver. I want to say it's stock water racing. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Some kind of race car driving. He had a wife. He had a daughter. He was crazy rich and super good at what he did. He got very complacent in this life and started doing things to shake it up, like cheat on his spouse and be an asshole to a bunch of people. So it's bad. Um, <laughs> eventually his wife gets hip to what he's doing and she also tries to seek her own revenge. They're very destructive and toxic. And she ends up leaving him eventually. He kind of falls into this drug alcohol stupor and then decides he wants to get his wife and his daughter back. He goes back to get them. They decide they're going to work things out. And starts, was he drunk? Was he high? Was he drunk? They're having a good moment. They're laughing in like this. Is it a top? In, in the car. They're laughing in the car. They don't spot this stalled big rig that's just on the street. It's not like it was driving next to them and then stopped. It was just stopped in the street. But this, I guess he wasn't paying attention. Drove straight into it. It totally cuts off the very top of that car. Clearly their heads as well. Uh, Everybody should be dead. Everybody should be dead. Um, We get bits and pieces of his memory as he's trying to piece together what's happening. He's with uh, the doc is what we call him. Of course, I have nothing. Yeah, and um, he slowly but surely realizes he can't feel his body. And then it gets explained to him, the only thing that survived that accident was his brain. And it's been placed into this robot casing and he has to learn how to use this robot casing to live a new life. Wonderful. Um, But yeah, the first episode was all about Robot Man, basically. We got other backstories. We learn about Matt Boomer's character, AKA Larry Trainer, AKA Negative Man, uh, and how he ended up joining up with the Doom Patrol. He too was saved by Timothy Dalton's character, Niles Calder, AKA the chief. He used to be a test pilot and he test, he flew into some very strange electric energy, which caused a terrible chaotic mess. Uh, when his plane hit the ground, he survives the fall, but he is completely mutila- mutilated and radioactive. That's, that's problems. That's terrible. Um, He also had a crazy secret. So he too had like this perfect life and a wife and some kids. And it turned out he was secretly gay. And he was just exploring that with his lover who also worked with him in the test pilot business. So, yeah. Um, (laughs) So they have that. We also had um, Rita Farr's backstory. They call her Elasta Woman. We haven't seen her be Elasta Woman yet. She's mostly just a blob. Right now, she's played by the very adorable April Bowlby, who I recognize from Drop Dead Gorgeous. Or is it Drop Dead Gorgeous? It's Drop Dead Diva. That's what it's called. That I recognize from Drop Dead Diva, which was a Lifetime series that ran for way too fucking long. But she was adorable in it. She was a highlight. So I love that she's doing Rita Farr. She plays this very self-centered actress who accidentally gets caught up in some murky liquid 
in Africa while filming a movie. It's very strange. It doesn't make sense. It's also kind of racist. So there's a lot of things happening there. Um, we have, there's a whole scene with her where they're filming the, this movie that she's supposed to be in. And she is completely uncomfortable with the guy running the camera. This guy only has one arm. But he's doing the damn thing. But she finds it distracting. And rather than have it be what I would feel is truer of the time, that she's very uncomfortable with all these black people around her, because they are filming in Africa, they try to make the focus the fact that she's uncomfortable with this handicapped guy. And that's why she's a bitch. Sure, show. Sure. So she makes this choice to like not have this camera guy there. They, they get rid of him because she's the star. And when she goes back to set the next day, thinking everything is fine, she's feeling the hate from the entire crew. <laughs> That's there. And, it, and you know, it rubs her the wrong way. And it, it's what leads to her falling into this murky water and into whatever this substance is. And then when she comes out of that water, she becomes blob woman. I'm not sure how the chief saves her, but I guess he manages to stabilize her condition and she's able to kind of, you know, conform herself into what she looks like now. Sure. We also get um, Crazy Jane, who to me is the most problematic character out of a lot of problem characters on this show. I just don't have high hopes for uh, this DC streaming service to really expand on the nuances of everybody there like matt bromer's character him playing this closet gay man who's now literally living in a closet like he's literally in a sealed off room so that he's not a danger to anybody else because he's so radioactive and literally has to keep him enti- his entire self bandaged so he like physically has a wall between himself and everybody else I, uh, what so what are we doing so we have this character named crazy jane she kind of shows up in the middle towards the end of the first episode and she supposedly is a person who has 64 distinct personalities each displaying a different superpower so she's essentially their legion so marvel's legion is a a gentleman character a man character uh with an fx show that's been taken off another show i have not watched everybody says it's really really good i have not watched it but he too has a lot of personalities that are kind of imbued into him and they all have different abilities. And depending on the personality that takes over, that's what he can do or can't do, blah, blah, blah. So she has those kinds of personalities. She calls where her personalities hang out, the underground. She just comes in super, super angry, like immediately. It's like she comes in super pissed. She's cussing for no reason. She's making very, very awkward sexual innuendos, innuendos uh, to Brendan Fraser's robot man. It's just, it's very confusing as to why we are starting at a level 11 with her for no reason right now. Additionally, like the background to her character, like how she was created, she's based on a real woman apparently who really exists. She, uh, I actually have notes on this. I have it ready, kind of, nope. But um, yeah, I was just very confused so the, apparently there was a woman named Trudy Chase who wrote a book about dissociative identity disorder. Uh, she's known for her autobi- autobiography that discusses her experience with this. And they were like, you know what? We should make a, a mutant about our metahuman with this kind of ability. And what would that look like? Granted, I'm sure the idea had its merit, 
But I'm not very comfortable with them talking about a psychological disorder and not really showing how she is really dealing with it because it's completely torturing this character. She's a miserable character who never has a handle on her day-to-day life and who's, who's so far just been very aggressive and very abusive. So I might be reading too much into it, probably, but I'm not really feeling this character. She's just kind of shows up and is a bitch. She just shows up and she's a bitch and she's insane. And I don't know if it's gonna take a while for them to find a balance with all of this or what. I feel like with the other characters that they gave us this long backstory to, we get a, a, a different sense of them. Additionally, those three characters, Robot Man, Elasto, Elasto Woman, uh, Negative Man, we were introduced to in that standalone episode on Titans. So you have even more backstory with them. And then you just get this crazy Jane character who doesn't even stay with them long term. She's just kind of in and out of a lot of the story. She's not consistent. I'm like, okay, okay, confused. Anyway, so that's happening. Um, the pacing on the show is weird. The pacing on the show is weird. The first episode, we spent a long time in Robot Man's backstory. A very long time in Robot Man's, Robot Man's backstory. They summed up Negative Man and Elastic Woman's backstories pretty succinctly, pretty fast. But for whatever reason, we just like stayed in cliffs for no reason. And they end that first episode on like a cliffhanger. We get introduced to the big bad, Mr. Nobody, played by Alan Tudyk, who has been the narrator for this whole episode this entire time. We find out he's actually an enemy of the chiefs. The chief disappears. The chief I also don't trust. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening over there. We end it with them facing a destroyed town and the chief missing. When we roll into episode two, I it doesn't to me it doesn't really pick up the momentum. And we get introduced to I guess the final character. Is that see the fifth character? Three. Yep. The fifth character for their Doom Patrol, which is Cyborg. That was a negative for me in the first episode. Like, I didn't know why we didn't just have him in the first episode. Okay. Uh, but now we have him in the second episode. And it's awkward. So now that Cyborg's here, I'm not sure why he's here. Like, I don't understand why he's here. So he shows up and again, pretty quickly, pretty fast, we sum up his backstory. And I guess they're trying to take, I think they're hoping A, of the bench he is the most familiar if you watch teen titans you know who he is if you watched that the terrible justice league film which i did you know who he is so of the of the group he's the most well known so we don't get too deep into it we know there was an accident we know that he's a robot man and we know that his dad is helping him be a robot man that's where we are with that he's fighting he's doing his vigilante justice on the street Apparently, he just came off of a stint of working with the Justice League that's now disbanded for some reason. So it's post whatever. And he's an odd character fit into the storyline. I understand aesthetically or thematically, it makes sense because he too is a victim of a terrible, horrendous wreck that then had to find new life in the new body that he's in, which is kind of the premise for everybody, except for Crazy Jane. They still haven't told us exactly what's happening with her. 
But of the others, the other three, that's what's going on. It makes sense. But his fit into it, it it's, it's strange. He's super positive and immediately trying to lead the team, like immediately. Which I, I was confused as to why, why this was the goal of, he had. Like they try to shape it like he too had a relationship with the chief. The chief was also part of figuring out his new body, how to work it, how to be himself in it, like what that meant. Apparently the chief was choice for this, um, which is why he randomly decided to go help him. I don't even know why he knew the chief was missing. They didn't even really go into that. Like I have a thousand questions. So I don't know if he went to the, oh no, he heard something over the, the radio, the police radio, the security radio, something that talked about how the town basically had disappeared. So he went to check it out, went to check on the chief, found out the chief was missing and kind of gets himself involved with the rest of the Doom Patrol. Uh, he is the one that kind of gets them together, like corrals them into moving in a positive motion forward to try to save the chief, which uh, we gets us into some weird stuff and other things that worked in, but he's still a weird addition to the rest of Doom Patrol. Like, again, I only have this to base off of, which is, excuse me, the Titan episode and episode one. These characters, like like what Titans tried really hard to be, are very sad. They're very sad characters. They're trying to be these like, they, yeah, they're trying to be these anti-hero-esque type characters who have been through shit and are trying their best to make the most of that shit, essentially, but struggling with it because they still have their own wants and needs and they're not sure how to get that stuff done now that they have no idea how to reach those wants and needs because they can't trust the, the bodies they're in, which is interesting. And it worked because all of those actors really did a good job of showing the duality of that, of how what they used to have versus what they've got now and what that means and what that looks like and how sad they are that they don't have it anymore works. With Cyborg, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm confused. They're making it look like he had the same feelings at some point of being in separate worlds and not knowing how to make those worlds work together, but that he's past that now. Like he knows how to do it. And he just has an overburdening father who's trying to macro micromanage the shit out of his life. That's all I'm really getting from Cyborg. I'm very confused why he's here. Why are you here? So anyway, that's most, that's most of my complaints. Most of my complaints are of the pacing being its typical, so unfortunately, it's typical DC pacing when it comes to live action shows. And this awkward addition of this very positive character. I guess he's trying to fill the shoes of Beast Boy. Beast Boy also is a pretty optimistic character, which wouldn't be completely out of tune, I guess, with the comic source. But right now to me, it's just very bewildering why they wouldn't put Cyborg with Titans and instead with Doom Patrol. Anyway, onto the good stuff. So the good stuff that went down, I really, really enjoy the ensemble. The ensemble is pretty funny with minus Crazy Jane, which is sad because I love the actress who plays Crazy Jane. So the girl who actually plays Crazy Jane, that I've, that I've said her name like 80 times, 
She is played by Diane Guerrero, who I know from Orange is the New Black, and she was also on, um, I almost said Ugly Betty. That is not it. Was it? No. It wasn't Ugly Betty. It's uh, Jane the Virgin. She's on Jane the Virgin as well. She's hilarious. I love her. She's actually a really, really great actress. However, she is playing this character that I don't know. It doesn't feel real. Like, just, just this character who's mad for mad's sake. I don't care. I will give her credit, though. In, this, in the second episode, they kind of expanded more on the personalities that Jane has. And she's got this, like, cutesy baby character who's just super, well, like, lovey-dovey cutesy, but, like, very little girlish. Who I thought was hysterical. But I also think that's because that was the personality that was closest to the other characters that she's played that I'm familiar with. So that's probably why I was okay with it. Because all the other personalities that are in this girl are all super angry and aggressive. I'm confused. So we have that whole situation going on. So the Crazy Jane storyline aside, I did appreciate the Robot Man versus Cyborg confrontation. They had this whole like, who has the bigger penis kind of discussion of, or, you know, who should do what, when and where, blah, blah, blah. Like basically as soon as Cyborg arrives on the scene, he's immediately like, this is a team. This is the plan, gun ho And everybody else is like, who the hell is this? Like what, <laughs> why? We don't have to follow any of this, we're going. Um, but I like their back and forth. And I also like how they can play on the fact that you kind of have two of the same type right now. You've got two people in mechanical bodies trying to make things work. Cool. So, I mean, it was still nice. It was still nice to see that back and forth. I also really loved the villain we've got. So the villain they introduced in episode one is somebody called Mr. Nobody, played by Alan Tudyk. This character is pulling a Deadpool where he's going uh, to the fourth person and talking straight to the audience. He did a full recap simultaneously trolling its viewers, but also praising them. It was brilliant. It was wonderful. It was a very nicely done. I quite enjoyed it. And I loved whenever he showed up because he's just talking a lot of nonsense. And his power scale right now, his abilities off the chain like it's in i'm gonna have to look up this character i am not familiar with mr nobody but his powers are unbelievable right now i don't know if he's warping realities or physically changing them either way whoa whoa so clearly episode two gets the full team together we've got robot man cyborg crazy jane elastin woman and negative man uh, episode two also expanded more on Negative Man. So that I liked. We actually got to see the neg- the energy zoop out of him and do its thing. There's a whole, There was a very funny part where Negative Man decides that he is just going to run out of town. He's going to leave town. He can't handle everything that's happening. He doesn't want to deal with it. He's out. He gets his bus ticket to leave to a faraway town. Doesn't work. When he gets ready to get on that bus... His energy just leaves its body. And <laughs> when it comes back, he misses the bus. And he's like, like, damn it. And it keeps happening. He keeps trying to change his ticket. He keeps trying to go. Energy keeps leaving, coming back. And he's just like, fuck this time. So he ends up having to go back to the house. I also loved Alaska woman kind of being forced into using her building in a controlled way. For the most part, a lot of stuff just keeps happening to her. It takes all of her concentration for her to maintain her regular form, which is her favorite form. So doing anything else, like stretching a limb, 
anything, her an eyeball. She's not used to doing that on command. Most of her ability depends on her emotions. She's an actress. So she's got to dig deep and find out the trigger so she can get this done. I loved that uh, they figured out a way to have her be involved and figure out the new, I don't know, I guess the, the next piece of the puzzle and trying to get the chief back when it comes to Mr. Nobody. They find out this donkey that looked like it destroyed the town actually is a door to another dimension type of situation. And they, they figure out a way to enter that door. Which led me to my most favorite part so far of the Doom Patrol series, which was in episode two. Their freaking tortures. Their tortures were amazing. It sounds bad that I'm saying it this way, but their tortures were amazing. We only had three characters go into this realm. It was Cyborg, Negative Man, and Elasta Woman. Uh, for some reason, Robot Man and Jane are having this very odd storyline where he kind of sees her like a daughter. And she kind of respects him as a father figure. It was boring. Who cares? On to the, <laughs> on to the tortures. Basically, uh, Mr. Nobody is teasing these characters with their best life and then taking it away from them. Because oh, that's fun. So he does it with Rita. He puts her on a set and a stage and gives her lines to run and read or whatever. And to Rita's credit, she knows it's all bullshit, but she's like, what the fuck else am I going to do? Like, you're you're not going to let me go, so I might as well go ahead and enjoy myself. She's fully aware that it's a complete falsehood and he's using it to mock her. But she's like, I don't care. So she does, she goes for it. They also kind of tease a secret. There's a whole situation where she is staring into this baby carriage and you hear a baby wailing and she's looking at it petrified. So I don't know if that is leading to the fact that she may or may not had a kid or she may or may not have gotten rid of a kid in some way. I don't see abortion being typed into the show. I don't. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was an adopted baby somewhere roaming, living its best life. So that for Rita, we also had Negative Man returning to his physical form. So we could see Matt Bomer's beautiful face. Um, but he's kind of stuck in this loop of being in a plane. Even though he loves being a pilot, it's terrifying for him uh, because they're putting uh, family members and all of his guilt on display for him to deal with. Uh, he's got his wife, who he kind of feels bad about, but not really. But then you have the lover that he's more concerned about because oh, that was his actual passion. And um, Mr. Nobody just kind of flips the script and makes the lover be the one that's dealing with this radioactive madness. And his body starts changing and he's screaming for help from Matt Palmer's character. And Matt Palmer's character doesn't know what to do. Negative Man has no idea what to do. Um, But he knows he has to do something because he's got to knock himself out of this loop. He's also about to die in this plane that's diving down to the ground. And we also get my favorite part, Cyborg. Cyborg's torture. I mean, was crazy, but also it also worked to tell us more about the backstory in case you weren't aware. Like we knew he lost a lot of his physique in a terrible accident. Uh, we just didn't know what that accident was necessarily. Sometimes it's a car accident. Sometimes it's a lab accident. Sometimes it's something else. Uh, in this series, it is a lab accident that was being done in the home. And apparently it was done by Victor himself, Cyborg. Uh, and in the process of him doing this project, he ended up terribly harming himself and also killing his mother. So Mr. Bot- Mr. Nobody's trying to use this to get at him. But Victor's like, no, no, no. 
I've been down this road. Like I'm, I'm a seasoned professional. You're not going to get me. But they have him in this mutilated body when he's going through this speech. He's missing a limb. You see a full arm just to the bone, like inches away from his body, missing an eyeball, missing legs. I was impressed. I mean, it was gory. It was really gory. And I, I understood DC's trying to be edgy. It worked for me in this little brief scene. They they put the realism out there and they didn't shy away from it. They were like, this is what he would look like. This is what Cyborg would look like in real life with the, with the insane damage that was done to his body. This is what it would look like. I'm like, oh. And they, they kept it going into his next torture. There's a whole part where he's trying to face down his dad and his dad has the voice of Mr. Nobody. And he's cutting off the dead arm on his body, it's insane. And again, crazy gory and excellent. It was really good. I still don't know why Cyborg is here, but if they're gonna do dark stuff like this, this kind of crazy, insane stuff all the time, I'm in. I'm in, they got me. I'm down to watching Doom Patrol. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. I do, so tell me two episodes in, I'm very much more interested in watching this show than I did Titans two episodes in. Two episodes in on Titan, we were still going in circles about Raven. Still, still. So, I'm not, I'm not excited about the pacing, especially when it comes to balancing storylines like they're doing with Cliff and Crazy Jane. They're trying to explore this more emotional side while giving us, they give us a, a brief backstory for Jane in the second episode, but it also didn't answer a lot of questions. I guess that was purposeful. I just have so many questions. Anyway, so I don't understand how she would be a functional part of this group. I don't understand how that works. I don't, I'm confused. I'm confused. Cause they're constantly dealing with a different version of her or I guess a different personality every time they're in any kind of contact with her. How do you use her effectively in a team like that? Confusion. I guess we'll find out. We'll find out, I guess, is how the rest of that show is gonna go. But so far, pretty good. Other than Cyborg not really fitting in, the way they're trying to loop him in into Doom Patrol, so far, I'm, I'm not complaining about it. He definitely stands out as not like the others right now, but I'm, I'm hoping that we're gonna get more episodes like we did with the second season, especially when it comes to the darker edge of Cyborg and what that looks like and how he handles it and what it means. It's gonna be very exciting to see. I'm also confused as to why his dad is such a big part of his story right now. If this is supposed to be post-Justice League cyborg, why is his dad still in the picture? I'm, what? Why? Why? So many questions. But anyway, so that's what's happening right now for him. Um, what else? That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it for Doom Patrol. I'm here for Alan Tudyk. He is doing a great job, as he always does. He's always a highlight in whatever project or film or TV series that he's in. I am here for it. Alan Tudyk all day. I'll take it. But yeah, that's pretty much it for Doom Patrol. I'm going to be moving on to the full feels. Oh, get ready for Umbrella Academy right after this.
Aloha, beautiful listeners. It's Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I wanted to take this moment to thank you for all of those listening ears that check out my ramblings on this podcast. Please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts as they really help this little podcast grow and grow. Also, don't hesitate to reach across those social media lines to talk about all things geek with me. Check out Curvy Geeky Fangirl on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget that if you listen to this podcast on Anchor, you can leave an audio message that might get played on the podcast. Just saying. Now, back to my ramblings. All right, it's that time. My breakdown of the Umbrella Academy. I know you've been waiting for it, but here it is. What in the world? This show was great. I loved it. I loved it. This show, uh, Netflix original, it's about uh, 10 episodes, 11 episodes-ish. And... Okay, it's got its greats, it's got its bads. We're gonna talk about, uh, I'm just gonna be realistic, I like to give the bad news first. I'm gonna talk about the bads. The bads first about Umbrella Academy. Thankfully, it is not a long list. So, here we go. The not so great about it, the pacing. So apparently that is a struggle right now with uh, a lot of superhero related TV shows. How do we pace this out? How do we use the episodes that we've confirmed to our best advantage and then failing miserably. No, I'm kidding. They're not <laughs> They're not failing miserably. They're just not doing a good job of juggling all the stuff they've got to juggle. I don't agree. There's a, there's a sentiment out there that if these were week to week, like DC does with Titan series, with their Doom Patrol series, that it'd be better to disseminate the information the way, that way, if you're doing it week to week. I hard disagree. We see how that works with the CW shows as well, when I was able to watch them, um, commercial free. So <laughs> we see how that works as with them as well. You get a lot of episodes of just filler, of just filler. And so they can jump into the next story. Clearly there is a disconnect between the story and how much they wanna string out that story. With the Netflix series, it was 10 episodes long. We didn't need 10 episodes of this. And I mean, it was a great show. It's still a great series. I think it would have been a, fan se- a fantastic series with eight episodes. Um, and that's that's been the hurdle they've always dealt with. It happened with their Marvel shows when they had them. It happened on that, um, oh, what is it called? Their other sci-fi show they picked up. Danger. Oh, fa- the Swiss Family Robinson show. Lost in Space. There you go. That's what it's called. Um, yeah, with that show too, that ran a very long time. It didn't need to run as long as it did. But the this, this story is good. The story is good. Props to Gerard Way uh, for the story he created. But uh, I don't have any reference to that, which apparently worked to my benefit. So I don't have reference with the written material. He's got several graphic novels out all about the Umbrella Academy. And the TV show was the introduction for the rest of us noobs who maybe had heard about it, but didn't really know too much about it or had never heard about it at all. And we're getting into it for the first time. And so, like I said, pacing wasn't great. It, the story ran a little long. There were some episodes where I was like, this, did this need to be here? Why does, why does this need to be here? Um, and side stories that seemed to distract a lot from everything that was going on. I felt like we could have condensed five story a lot faster than we did. They strung that shit out. 
way too long. I feel like we could have wrapped that up even if they wanted to make it in the middle of the season, which they kind of did to finally give us all the information of what was going on with Five. I felt they could have introduced him, gave us that backstory and showed where he is right now in his perception of everything in one episode and not strung it out throughout the whole episode or the whole series the way they did. Um, I also didn't like how uneven the story was for a lot of the characters. They're focused on the Academy. They're focused on, um, are they, yeah, the Academy. That's what they call themselves. The Umbrella Group, which is essentially seven. Um, so short, long story short, it's about these kids who all have powers. Randomly in 1989, for some reason, 43 women all miraculously gave birth to kids. These kids may or may not have powers. Uh, there was a guy named Hardgreaves who wanted these kids. What's his full name? Don't even know. Apparently I don't get to know. It doesn't happen. Really? I don't get to know? I don't get to know. Ben Hargreaves, there we go. Ooh, random. So Ben Hargreaves uh, decides he wants to purchase some of these kids. He manages to purchase seven apparently, raise them and create them to be a team that is going to save the world. Cool. Terrible. Cool. And it was, it was like, supposedly Gerard Way, who's the creator of the story, got a lot of inspiration from Doom Patrol which you can definitely see a lot of the resemblances there. There's a lot of this like misfits kind of bunched together, which is a hysterical play later because one of the characters was literally a misfit in another show. But it's like this, I don't want to say lesser known, but this other side, a B side as it were, to being a superhero. Usually when we have a superhero, they they know the right way and, and they may not have had the greatest upbringing or the greatest experiences to get them where they are, but they are dead set and they are pretty power focused on what they want to do and how to get there, goal oriented. Meanwhile, you've got these misfits who are kind of a fucking mess and, and we get the backstory to that, but that leads into the good stuff, back to the bad stuff that I didn't like about it. So we, <laughs> we had all that. Um, like I said, the pacing wasn't great. The random storytelling and the way they decided to do that storytelling was odd. Um, we also had, I didn't like that the female characters, back to my point of this uneven storytelling for the characters, I didn't like that the female characters kind of got the brunt of it. I mean, they kind of dwelled into these characters. Uh, Allison and Vanya are the, fem- are the sisters of the Academy. Vanya is somebody who has been pretty neglected for a majority of her life. She was told by Hargraves that she had no powers. We find out that is not true. She's actually the most powerful of them, but he wasn't sure how to calm those powers or train her in how to use those and not be destructive or have her turn on him one day. So instead (laughs) he decides to wipe her memory of ever having them and constantly belittle her every chance he got. Cool plan, great. And then you had Allison who kind of had the opposite. She was a favorite of Hardgreaves. She was number three to him. And he numbers these kids in order of a, of, of skill set, basically, like who's the most productive for him. Allison was number three. She has the power of suggestion. So she says, I heard a rumor that, and then whatever she says at the end of that happens. So if she says, I heard a rumor that you got shot in the toe. Somehow you're getting shot in the toe. I heard a rumor that I'm going to be a great actress. That's what happens. That's how she gets launched into her career. Is it unearned? Yeah. Does it have its fallbacks? Yeah. And they show how it's kind of a shallow existence for her. She's kind of living in shadows. 
It's not really hers, but she's here with it and she doesn't want to give it up, but it's also had effects on other relationships in her life, primarily her former marriage and her child. Um, And that's most of Allison's story, how like she's kind of spoiled, is self-aware enough to know that she's spoiled and has a bunch of shitty relationships. And that's pretty much it. And it's the same thing with Vanya. Like the spoiled thing, not so much true. But like this self-centeredness that kind of comes from her when she gets a hint of validation from somebody. You kind of see her go through that. I mean, they tried to show that Vanya and Allison had a, a closer relationship than Vanya had with the others for some reason. It wasn't lasting, clearly. Uh, but uh, they all have to deal with trust issues and all the kids have trust issues. But I felt like the guys got more chance to show more dimensions to their character. Like we get to see silly sides. We get to see their serious sides, their sad sides, and their happier time sides. And with the girls, it was just like this serious, sad side, glimpses of happy mostly sad and mostly revolving around men like they they never really had a discussion where they weren't talking about their brothers or their father or the boyfriend so there's a boyfriend that Vanya gets that becomes a bone in everybody's side eventually so I wasn't a fan of how especially Allison who mind you is the only black woman character no I take that back she well main character in the in the academy group uh and uh she didn't really get a whole lot to do we mostly just see her sad that's it so eh, there was that um um oh towards the end of the series there was a random shot of hargreaves we get a random window into hargreaves prior to being doing and building up the umbrella academy it's this whole scene where he's talking to apparently his wife who's dying she has a violin that she gives him and is like, please give it to somebody who will enjoy this uh, before she passes. And then as she's going, he's looking out the window and we see all these little lights coming out of the surface, going into space. And you're like, okay, okay. And then you see Hardgreave arriving in whatever this town is at like 1910. And he just purchases this umbrella factory, which then becomes the Umbrella Academy. It established a lot of questions. One, why doesn't Hargreaves age? Two, <laughs> what the fuck just came off of the surface of wherever he was? Like, what were these lights about? Three, he was married? So like, they randomly threw this in towards the end of the season and then just didn't touch it after that. And you're like, okay, and moving on to the next part of the show. It was very disjointed and disconnected and relates to that pacing where they just kind of dropped something on you and then like peaced out. Uh, I had to go back and find out what the hell was happening there. Apparently those lights were spaceships. Apparently Hargreaves is an alien. Um, and who doesn't age? So, yeah, more questions. Um, and then we also got introduced to this character called Pogo. In the house, there's a character called Grace, a.k.a. Mom. She's basically the mom to all the characters. She's a robot. And through Vanya's flashbacks, we find out why this robot mom is there for them. And it's supposed to be because of Vanya. They needed somebody who was going to be resilient against her destructive ability. They can't have a human. It's very rare that humans can repair themselves. So, robot mom. Um, but we also got this character named Pogo. We never got a backstory on Pogo. 
Not at all. We see him at the very beginning of the series. He almost runs throughout the whole series. He is a talking monkey. He's a talking chimpanzee. He's very big. <laughs> He's quite large for a chimpanzee. He looks like he was a butler. He was definitely a servant, an assistant to Hardgreaves. And when Hardgreaves dies, he is there to help the kids, or now adults, kind of come to grips with what's going on around them. We also find out that he was a keeper of secrets. He knew a lot of shit that would have helped them further down the road. Like the fact that Vanya has powers and that she's crazy destructive and now they're all in trouble. Here we go. But I understand why we didn't get a, a background story to Pago. Like, how do we have this talking chimpanzee? No questions? No questions. Okay. Um, why is he there? Why was he so dedicated to Hargreaves? Questions. No answers. Pogo dies. And then they're just like, yeah, we're sad. Anyway, nothing, but nothing. That's it. It was questions, but that's it. That's all the bad I have about Umbrella Academy. Into the good. I really liked this take on the superhero conundrum. I love superhero stories. I do. I never get tired of them. I never get tired of interpretations of them. And I especially love it when we take it from a shitstorm view, essentially. Like these people should not be heroes. They should not be the ones responsible for saving the planet. They shouldn't. They are fucked up. They've had the most traumatic childhood. I can only imagine. They never were fully kids. They were never fully kids. They weren't allowed to do a lot of things. They spent their entire childhood into their adulthood being micromanaged by heart griefs. There's this whole part in there where he's yelling at Luther and Allison who have snuck away because these are two characters that are in love. Problematic, but not problem enough for me to care. Um, technically they're all adopted, so they're not blood related, but they definitely refer to each other as brother and sister. It's gross. So they're, <laughs> they're trying to have this like little romantic interlude as kids. Uh, they've created like this lean to teepee or uh, well, Wonder Cave, a fort. They created like this little blanket fort and they had snacks and they were ready to enjoy like a little date. It was really cute. And Hargreaves like busts in and he's like, I told you, you're only allowed to have fun, leisure time between the hours of 12 o'clock and 1230 on Saturdays. Like <laughs> it's like a small little window. It was hilarious uh, and separates them immediately. So we get to see that they had these wants and these needs and they were looking for validation and love from somebody who was incapable of giving it to them. And even though this person knew they were incapable of giving it of giving it to them and had created these others, these other people or beings in their life to do that, it it wasn't the same and it wasn't enough for these kids. And now they're dealing with that as adults and they are messed up. Um, we have Luther, who is the Captain America of the group. He's the believer. He is the one that feels like their father had the pl the best plans ever. He was the, he was the one uh, who knew what they had to do and when to do it and how to get it done. And he believed his father to the end, even to even after his father sent him away uh, to have him do nothing. And the realization of that the, when he comes back to Earth and discovers that that's why he was sent away in the first place was heartbreaking and amazing at the same time for this character. He's this like lovable teddy bear asshole. Like that's, <laughs> like that's it. He is supposedly the leader of the group and he definitely believes himself to be the leader of this group. 
But he's also terrible. <laughs> he's essentially Batman. Now that I'm thinking about it, he's essentially Batman. Batman is an asshole. I'm going to say it. I'm going to put it out there. You've got this guy who believes against everything else that he's the one with the answers. And that's kind of what Luther does. He's like, listen, you don't understand. This is what we've got to do. And he doesn't really listen to his siblings at all when they also are bringing up other points about what they're doing and why they're doing it. He get, he's, As the series goes on, he slowly but surely is forced to because everything he's believed in gets thrown into question but he very much is like this well i'm the one that's right (laughs) kind of person even though he doesn't want to believe that so you have that and you have uh diego who's number two diego is constantly trying to show his importance and we see why he's always come second to luther he also had a lot of uh, what he believed to be shortcomings growing up. He had this stutter. He didn't have Luther's strength. And so he's kind of been like uber superhero soldier on the streets. He is aggressive. <laughs> he is. He is. He just doesn't uh, listen to a lot of rules at all. He breaks a lot of laws in the process of what he thinks is he's doing correctly. We also have uh, number three, which is Allison, which I went into. She has, oh, I forgot to tell you powers. Luther has uh, super strength. And I think he is also invulnerable because he blocks a lot of shots. So he doesn't get shot easily, but I don't think he's completely invulnerable because he gets hurt a lot. But we also find out his DNA is mixed with what looks to be primate DNA. Because he's kind of got a gorilla body happening with a human head. So that that's something that's happening. Diego, apparently, his ability apparently is that he has can control the curvature of an object, which is why he's good at throwing. So he throws knives because he knows how to. He's essentially the bullseye of their group. He can definitely hit his mark no matter where this mark is. He knows how to curve things around corners and the like to try to get to what he's got to get to. Allison is this person with the power of the suggestion. And anything she says goes, literally. Number four is Klaus, who's quickly becoming an internet favorite. He is played by Robert Sheehan. And I get why. I get why he's the favorite. Uh, so number four apparently is a powerhouse. And we just haven't, we just started touching the surface of it. He is able to speak to the dead. And then towards the end of the episode, we find out he can actually control the dead he's able to bring their abilities or their their power or their essence or whatever the physicality of them into our plane which was kind of dope it was really nice to see that happen we have number five who was it he never gets a name he's just known as the child or five or number five and he actually had disappeared for a while so apparently in their story he disappeared like 14 17 years ago when they were all kids uh, he is a jumper, so he can jump through space and time. Teleporter. But he uses that to jump in, jump through time as well as space. So apparently he jumped too far into the future and got stuck. He wasn't able to come back. And it shaped him. He has seen some shit. And when he does manage to come back to the group, he ends up coming back in his child form, but apparently he's aged 50 years. So he's this very grumpy, crotchety man trapped in like this 13-year-old's body. The actor who plays him, this guy's name is Aiden Gallagher, did a fantastic job of portraying somebody who is 
much more experienced than his physicality appears to be. And his issues with trying to deal with that, of not being taken seriously when he's trying to get stuff done, even ordering coffee from like the, the local donut shop, it's a struggle. Because he knows what he's talking about. He's seen a lot. But because of the body he's in, no one kind of wants to believe him. He's also an asshole, much like the rest of his siblings, in that he just disregards people and just calls them stupid immediately and moves on. Hysterical. So he's dealing with that. We also had, we have number six, who is Ben. He is another sibling that we don't see a lot unless he's talking to Klaus. He apparently is a character that died off screen. So he made it to adulthood. Something went down. Apparently in the comics, it is a fight they get into with one of their big bads. He dies pretty terribly in the in the resulting of this fight. And they allude to it in the TV show that something went down where it was a terrible massacre for him or murder. Um, and that's why he's no longer in, in living form with them. But we've got Ben and then number seven is Vanya. And Vanya is a character who at first we think is powerless. She kind of was a part of the academy because she was one of the kids that got adopted, but she never was in the fight. She was always separated from them, isolated from them, and believes herself to not have any ability. Turns out, homegirl does. She got mad ability. She's basically the dark phoenix of their group. She also is trying to end the world. So we have all of that. I loved how the story enveloped the fact that these are all fuck-ups. Misfits, terrible people. <laughs> and in spite of all of that, they managed to work together to not only save a sibling, but try to save the world. It was nice. It was nice to see that kind of roll around. It took a little bit to get there. It took a while to get there, but I had fun the whole ride. It's not a perfect story. I wouldn't even say it's a super strong story because you, if you were a critic, you probably get tear it apart. But I don't think that was the point also. It was a fun ride. It was a very fun ride. The soundtrack for the show is amazing. The soundtrack for the show is dope, which makes sense. It's, it's Jared Way, Gerard Way is attached to it. He's the lead singer of My Chemical Romance. He's a fun weirdo. I love him. And I love that we're getting to see one of his works become this new entity. It also brought Robert Sheehan back to our lives. If you don't know who Robert Sheehan is, he is from Misfits. Misfits is one of my all-time favorite superhero TV series ever. I own every season of Misfits, or as much as you can own it when it's Amazon. Um, but this show did such a good job of showing like anti-heroes becoming heroes and how that works. It was very realistic. I loved it for its simplicity and its honesty. And if like people really did get superpowers, your first reaction would not be, and I need to save the world. <laughs> I need to be selfless and self-sacrificing and save the world. That is not what you would do at first. You would def for sure try to make this work to your best benefit first. Establish yourself financially maybe more so. And then go into the world saving business. <laughs> that's clearly what you do. And that's what Misfits kind of kind of played around with with young adults. I'm I want to say these were all teenagers. They're in their late teens, maybe early 20s, uh, dealing with their fuckery. It introduced us to Robert Sheehan. He played a character called Nathan. Nathan was hilarious. Nathan was an asshole. So it's not too far of a stretch for him to play close. I will say that his Klaus character versus his Nathan character, Klaus is a lot more in tune with his emotions 
and his feelings, which is why he's constantly drugged up. I also loved that being a crutch for this character who sees the dead. I like stories where characters see the dead. I'll put that out there. Necromancers, I don't want to call them psychics, but usually when you have characters that talk to the dead, see the dead, it's a morbid situation. It's usually a depressing situation because you're dealing with unfinished business on a day-to-day business, especially when you're dealing with entities that are showing themselves as they were when they died. So they're not usually the cleanest. It's usually pretty gruesome and gross and... I could not imagine having these, all these voices in your head nonstop and being the only one who hears them. So I thought they did a really good job of showing how much that isolates Klaus. Oh, I guess all the characters kind of dealt with isolation now that I'm thinking about it. But especially with Klaus, how that really isolates Klaus and how the only way he figured out to cope with it was to do insane amounts of drugs on a regular basis. Problematic but on purpose. So I really liked that that was part of the character's uh, journey in this series and seeing him decide to sober up so that he can use it effectively and what that meant and how it moves on. Each of the characters, did they did, I felt like they did a decent enough job of us understanding them, how they worked and why they would choose to try and help their sister who they've ignored this entire time and what family actually means to them. I thought they did a pretty decent job. I didn't mind the ending for Umbrella Academy. So if you watch the series and you get to episode 10, it does leave you on an insane cliffhanger. Like they spent a lot of time building up this this event of the world ending and Vanya finally being the reason why the world is ending only to have it end weird. Like they don't end Vanya. She goes full white violin. She goes to shoot some sort of energy laser out of her body destroys the moon uh but rather than shoot her allison shoots next to her allison also has been through some trauma when allison is trying to protect vanya there's a whole side story with vanya where she meets this guy and kind of falls for him turns out homeboy is insane he is somebody who has been obsessed with the Umbrella Academy. He's felt like he was one, he, like he was one of them. He's been quite destructive in his own life. He's murdered some people, you know, uh, but he thinks it's for the greater good. And he sees Vanya as like a, a piece to a puzzle he's supposed to be a part of. No, no, bro, no. Hit the lengths this dude goes to trick Vanya, not only into trusting him, but into separate, removing herself even further away from her siblings kind of genius low-key genius uh but also uh insane so but he gets his comeuppance he does that happens for him so justice deserved um but they end it with five basically saying we need to go back we need to go back so we can fix vanya so the world doesn't end and i was down with that we get a whole montage of the gang all together all holding hands, all being in there for each other. And I love the flip back and forth between them as kids and them as adults. A lot of people who read the comics though, not so much a fan of that particular ending or even how the story went. Um, We also had side characters, Cha-Cha and Hazel, who are assassins throughout the whole series. I liked these characters too. Cha-Cha is played by Mary J. Blige. 
enough said. Hazel is a character who is dealing with the ramifications and the morality of everything he's done as an agent with this bureau that he's associated with. They're effectively a time management bureau. And Tatcha and Hazel, like I said, they're assassins. They make sure the right people are dead or the right people are protected in order to keep this timeline intact. More questions kind of go up in the air. But essentially, we're dealing with another couple whose relationship is kind of at an end. Granted, they're business partners. There's not really a lot of hints that they were romantically involved at all. You've got Hazel who wants to get out. He kind of wants to live his life. He kind of wants to experience love and like just be done with the killing business. And then you've got Chacha, Mary J. Blige's character, who is like, nah, she all about that life. She <laughs> she is good at this life. She understand, She doesn't understand why things need to change. And she cares for Hazel. She does care for Hazel. There's a whole part in there where they're supposed to kill each other and they both decide not to because they both really value each other. And I thought that was really sweet and nice to have that moment in there with these two supposedly cold-blooded murderers. That was nice. It was not long-lived. Other stuff went down. But I liked it. I liked the little side tours we got because it also gave me more frame of reference with the bureau they're dealing with. It sounds like this bureau who's managing the timelines or whatever. Um, it's c- incredibly corrupt. It's incredibly corrupt and, and insane. I don't know how this even... I have questions as to how this bureau got started and what plan they're ultimately following. They keep talking about and referring to how the timelines have to be intact and they make sure that it, nothing strays. But if... It just threw a lot more questions. Like, if the timelines can be messed up easily, maybe the frame of reference of how they're supposed to be is subjective. But anyway, so they threw a lot of questions out with that. But I liked Hazel and Chacha because they gave an insight into this group that ultimately is after the Umbrella Academy. So that was cool. And Five has strong ties to these characters too. Uh, In his 50 years in the future situation, he dealt with them a lot and the Bureau they're working with a lot. So it played into that overall storyline. Apparently though, this has very much differed from what's in the comics. So a lot of comic book readers, a lot of the recaps I watched that were comparing it with the graphic novels or the comics were very upset <laughs> with how they portrayed Chacha and Hazel, some of the main characters in the story, and the storylines themselves. Apparently what we watch in those episodes, in those 10 episodes, is not only most of the first graphic novel, or the first set of comics for the series, but also leads into a second set of, of books and stories from the second graphic novel. And they, a lot of the, the readers are confused as to how they're going to tie these big events that are happening in the second graphic novel with what's going on in the show currently. Because apparently some of the big events that happen in the second graphic novel are already unveiled in this first season. And they're kind of confused as to how this is all going to tie together for the next season. I don't have these problems because I didn't read the book. But it did give me insight into that whole, you know, geeks and their love type of uh, conundrum. I don't, I can't talk. Um, Situation. Because we have the purists as well, especially with the Marvel comics, DC comics. You get the movie that comes out, you get the TV show that comes out. And people constantly comparing the source material that they're pulling this inspiration from with what they're seeing. 
and how, you know, if it's not 100%, some people are like, this is terrible and it's garbage. And how it's for some other people, they're like, it's fine. It's another interpretation. It's okay. As as a noob, as somebody who has no background with the graphic novels, I was completely fine with how they unveiled it. Granted, I had no reference, but I also didn't feel like it was convoluted. I didn't feel like, <coughs> other than the awkward pacing, I didn't feel like, there was too much or too little of anything. Well, I take that back because the girls' storylines could have been much deeper. Um, but I didn't think it took, it took away from the overall story. I didn't feel like the story itself was crazy convoluted. Were there parts that could have been shortened and other parts that could have been longer? Sure. But I, don't, I didn't feel like it was a jumble and a mess, ultimately. It was pretty good. For me, it was... It was good enough to watch all 10 episodes in one go. It was enough to hold my attention. And it was great to see a lot of actors that were a part of these types of worlds that were in shows like Misfits or movies like X-Men who had kind of tapped into the genre before, but then we hadn't really seen them in too much come back. So that was really cool. And I find it really hilarious that a lot of people who had not known that Robert Sheehan was capable of all this because he's done some movies since Misfits that still kind of tap into fantasy and whatnot, but not to the extent that he could truly be as he is with Klaus. His character of Klaus and his character of Nathan, they both allow you to see a very multidimensional version of these characters. Nathan was the wild child. He didn't care about himself or anything else. And that showed he was, like I said, he was hilarious, but he, but it was because he didn't care. So like there was no filter. He said the first thing that popped into his head, and he was an asshole that you ended up loving. And with Klaus, I don't, it's not that he doesn't have a filter, but he's tapped into a lot more emotions and struggling with a lot of things that I feel a lot of people can relate to. And he handles it in such a comedic, offhanded way. Like he's quick to dismiss it from himself because he can't care about anything for too long before it be also becomes another voice in his head. It's pretty cool. So all of that is said, I feel like I'm talking in circles about Umbrella Academy, but it was really, really good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm excited to watch the second season. I kind of want to watch the first season again. There was a lot of breadcrumbs in my first round of watching it uh, that pretty much told you it was going to happen towards the end. Like there's a moment where Grace, the robot mom, she's sewing or hand stitching something. What do they call that? Cross stitching? She's cross stitching something. And it looks like a moon with a chunk missing from it, which ultimately leads us to Vanya's end episode cliffhanger, where she shoots into the moon and a chunk of it comes flying out of it. Uh, there's also this, uh, I don't know if she's a background character or what. There's a lady with red hair and glasses who shows up in every single episode. I'm pretty sure every single episode of Umbrella Academy. And she has full on conversations with the characters, the main characters of Umbrella Academy. And she just keeps showing up in these different spots. She's there at the bank when they're kids. She shows up on the bus when Klaus manages to escape Cha-Cha and Hazel and finds himself on the bus. She is at the bowling alley. Like she shows up in a lot of the episodes and I'm trying to figure out if she is a long running joke, if there's a character like her in the graphic novel if this was by accident, it can't be by accident. This has to be planned for her to be consistently in these scenes, showing up with these characters. So I'm kind of interested to see what that means. 
moving forward. But I, I mean, it's going to get a second season. I don't think it's an if question so much as a when. It's going to be a long time. We see how Netflix is when they're dropping their series. I mean, look at Stranger Things. So, <laughs> but yeah, I would say if you get the chance to catch Umbrella Academy, you should get it, you should check it out. You don't have to do a rush binge if you don't want to, or if you find because it can be slow in some parts for sure. But I liked it. I liked it a lot. If you like something that's a little quirky and definitely on the weird spectrum, you should check it out. You should check out Umbrella Academy. And that pretty much is gonna wrap it up. For this episode of the Kirby Geeky Fangirl, um, I don't know what to watch next. Without these D- DC TV shows from the CW, well, I think they're also almost about to end anyway. So maybe I'm not missing much. Yeah. So we'll see. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about catching up a Legion, but I don't know. I'm going to weigh, weigh more of the efforts on that. But I might make the next episode talking about romance stuff. I'm a romance junkie. I'm pretty sure I told you guys about this before. I have a deep history with Harlequin romance novels and other romance stories of the like. Films included. I don't really think there's TV shows like that. They might just be dramas. I don't think there's, well, there's one classified romance TV show that I know of, but it is on a streaming service that I'll probably jump into. So preview for next episode is me going deep into my love of romance the books that I've read the tv shows that I've picked up the films that I quite enjoy all in that genre and the streaming service that I have become obsessed with that also revolves around all of this Uh, that probably will be the next episode so yeah so that's gonna be it let me know if you guys have a show an anime another comic booky type show that you guys are really enthralled with that I am missing out on or haven't seen yet. Let me know what that is. And I'll catch up on it. Do you guys have your own comments and or questions about the shows that we or that I talked about today? Have you seen Umbrella Academy? Do you got a fave character? Did you think the plotting was weird? Did you check out Doom Patrol? Do you agree it's weird? Like, so, so any of those, all of the above, I'll be back again with another recap on the latest episode of Magicians and all of that fun stuff. But yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope you guys have a great week. Bye.